Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're in for a treat today, ladies and gentlemen. And I know what's going to happen at the end of this. You're going to rush down to the library to get this book. You might have to tell them to get it in because they may not have stocked it. Or if you're feeling flush, you'll rush out and buy it because I have read a truly, truly beautiful book of New Zealand history. And when I say a beautiful book, it's a beautiful book and that it's extremely well written. So you enjoy the words. But it tells a fabulous story, a wonderful story, a very human story, a story of our beginning, where we come from, how we got here. And when you read this book, it's letting the people that were there tell it. So it's not someone telling you what was said. You're listening to the people that were there, Maori and non-Maori, telling their story. And what I loved about it so much was that it made me proud to be a New Zealander. Because the story of New Zealand is a wonderful story Mm. of people working through uh, a tough time and time where tough things happened. And they worked it through, and there were some truly amazing individuals populating our history. And you know that if you took just one of them away, we would be in a completely different place. And so it is a story of real people standing up and making an astonishing difference. It's also a book that has made me incredibly angry because we have been, and I always suspected this, that's why I've never bothered to read New Zealand history much because you always sensed that you were being played that it was some pinko socialist writing it, telling you their story of New Zealand history. It didn't seem to add up to how things you'd think would work back in the day, but they told it. It seemed to be, I don't know, misleading. It seemed to be manipulative. It seemed to be propagandizing you. It seemed to be ideological, foisted back onto the past. And with this book, you can see that. And you see that there has been this huge division opened up in our society and driving our politics like nothing else. In fact, I would say this book is the most important political book now in New Zealand and probably for some years to come. It should be a book that everyone reads and it should be in our high schools and our kids reading it. Certainly our teachers should be reading it because it'll change how they think. And we have today, as our very special guest, the author of this truly wonderful book, Ewan McQueen. Good morning, Ewan. 
Good morning, Rodney. Well, I've never had such a wonderful intro to my book, Rodney. Thank you very much. Well, I mean that very genuinely, and my difficulty is going to be in this interview not to gush, right? Because this book is a pleasurable read, an interesting read, a powerful read, but it's a very important read. Um, the The book is called One Sun in the Sky, and we'll get that explained to us. And then the subtitle is called The Untold Story of Sovereignty and the Treaty of Waitangi. And I, I, you're going to love this interview, but you're going to love the book even more. It's um, You'll buy one and then probably buy another couple to give to your friends um, because it is so extraordinarily powerful. Ewan, first of all, what motivated you to write this book? Well, primarily, Rodney, because I love my country. And um, I've, I've got four, four children um, growing up in New Zealand. I want a positive future for our country. I want there to be good race relations in our country. and um, But, you know, race relations, good race relations, have to be built on truth. And unity has to be built on truth, truth about our history in particular. And, you know, in, in the last um, 30 years, you could say we have faced some, some hard truths about our history in terms of uh, many of the injustices that have been perpetrated um, in, in the way that the Crown has breached its commitments under the treaty in terms of land and resource loss. And so, and those things are being put right in the, in the treaty settlements process. And that process is not perfect. No one would say it, say it is. But I think it's been generally a positive thing for New Zealand and it's opening up new opportunities um, for Māori and uh, there are apologies, there's restitution made. I think that's a great thing. But we also need truth about the issue of sovereignty and what the treaty means. Just stop there, Ewan. Um, I love the country too, but I I didn't write a book. (laughs) Well, you're... I suppose the reason I wrote the book was because on this issue of sovereignty, where we have actually been going in the wrong direction, uh, no one was writing anything, Rodney. I mean, I I, I thought I'm not really the person to write this book. Who am I? Um, My background's in economics, uh, not history. Uh, But from my understanding of of the treaty and history, what I read was, I was a bit like you. It's like when I read New Zealand history, I thought, well, that doesn't seem to equate to what I understand the treaty established in New Zealand. So I thought, well, I really need to go. I'll do do some research, and I'll present the case because nobody else was. So um, you you I, had so, you had an instinct that the so-called history was not telling the full story, and yes. you decided to write the book and do the research, or did you start researching it and then out of that the book come? No, I I suppose I already knew enough about okay. New Zealand history that I knew that the whole. Um, uh, you know, the, the modern narrative about how the chiefs didn't give up sovereignty at, at Waitangi, they simply agreed to some sort of dual sovereignty arrangement. Uh, I knew that that was probably not true. And well, I you've thought, only well, got I'm... to look at it, don't you? You just can't imagine well, Queen Victoria at the height of the British Empire, the height of the power, saying, oh, I know what, <laughs> let's check power. Yeah. It just doesn't compute. Well, I suppose you're right, but I suppose the real question is how did the chiefs understand it? And yes. the, modern, the modern narrative now is that Māori understanding was different. And yeah. and I thought, well, 
from how I understand our history, I don't think that's true. So I did the research, um, and I was open to be proven wrong. You know, uh, the Waitangi Tribunal, actually, they came out in 2014 with their decision around the sovereignty issue, and uh, their, their view was that in the treaty, the chiefs were simply, they didn't give up sovereignty, they were simply agreeing to this dual sovereignty arrangement whereby the governor would govern Pākehā only and the chiefs would retain full independent sovereignty over their own people. So that's the, the Waitangi Tribunal report. It said that on the basis of the evidence, we can come to no other conclusion. Well, I thought, okay, maybe I'm wrong. There must be some strong evidence uh, for that, that narrative, that interpretation. Um, for, I mean, for years people had understood the treaty as establishing the sovereignty of the Crown over all New Zealanders. Mm. Um, so maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I actually read the entire report, 600 pages, um, looking for the evidence, and it was full of a lot of very interesting information. Um, but instead of finding a smoking gun, I found smoke and mirrors. And there was there was nothing substantive in the report to um, back up what was essentially an assertion about how to interpret interpret the treaty. So I actually went back myself to a whole bunch of historical documents. And this is, I think, the strength of the book. It is based on uh, like meeting notes, uh, letters, journals from the time, um, all of it historical actual evidence of what people said at the time. And in particular, what the chief said, what Maori leaders were saying at the time, and, and then said, okay, in the light of that, how can we think about how they understood the treaty. And actually, when, when you did that, you come to a very clear conclusion, because the evidence is pretty overwhelming, um, that they understood it in the traditional sense. And that is that the treaty established civil government in New Zealand. It established the authority of the Crown over all New Zealanders. Yes, it guaranteed uh, chieftainship, tino uh, rangatiratanga, but that was guaranteed within the context of the overarching sovereignty of the Crown over all New Zealanders. And I, and I would say right now, Rodney, that I, I think self-determination is a great thing. Yeah. I, I think all New Zealanders have the right to self-determination. I'm, I'm on the right of politics, I suppose. I think I don't believe in big government controlling everybody. I think it is good um, to, that good government actually fosters self-determination yeah. uh, and the maximum of liberty for its, its citizens. Um, so I don't have any trouble with self-determination, but self-determination is not the same thing as establishing an equal and separate sovereignty um, to the Crown. I was astonished by the book and the resources that are not only available, but readily yeah. available. Yeah. And th these were sources like these weeks-long meetings. I think the Kaurimarama meeting was four weeks from memory, from reading yes, the book. Yes, it was. Mm. And, and um, concurrent accounts. Um, written at the time, um, reports, um, and how sophisticated the discussion was. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the resources available now are quite um, magnificent. I mean, a lot of it is online. You can go and find the whole proceedings of the Koimarama Conference in 1860. This is the one you're referring to. Yes. Um, where 200 chiefs gathered from across New Zealand to discuss um, the, basically the rise of the Kingitanga and, and the conflict in Taranaki. Um, and we had this, this conference. The proceedings were all recorded, minuted, both in, in Te Reo and in English. 
and uh, and they're, now they're published online, and you can go and read them, and you can read what many of the chiefs had to say. And uh, <laughs> when you read it, you get a very clear picture that yes, these chiefs they were concerned about uh, the alienation of land, the injustice that had happened, some of the problems that were happening, but they were also very clear that in the treaty they had signed up uh, to the sovereignty of the Crown over all New Zealanders. Um, and people say, well, that was just a conference of chief, loyalist chiefs, as it were. Um, but there are plenty of other uh, yes. documentary um, evidences from, from Hui and places where you can see that all sorts of chiefs all over New Zealand had exactly the same view. You point out in the book that there's also a huge injustice done to these Maori leaders because they're either treated as stupid or tricky. Yeah. Right? Whereas when you read their actual words, they were very sophisticated. They understood exactly what they're about, even those that didn't agree uh, with the Crown had a very sophisticated understanding of the Crown and government and, uh, if you like, for want of a better word, Western society. Hmm. They weren't. Yeah, well, they weren't. Cut, they hadn't walked out of the bush um, no, with a spear and and said, "Oh, what's this?" No, I mean the the treaty itself in eighteen forty. Um, the 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 tribal leaders didn't come to that meeting cold. No, they had had um, probably twenty years, if not more, of interaction with European um, people, uh, with European worldviews. A number of them had been to New South Wales, where they'd seen how um, colonial government operated there. Uh, several of them had even been to England and, and yes. um, attempted to meet the Queen or the King. So it was wonderful. You know, Tell me. You started the research. What year was that? Uh, probably around 2015. My goodness. So you're sitting there and you're doing some of it online and some of it you're going, I guess, into the museum or library. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was one particular – I mean, we all have to be humble enough to say, hey, maybe I'm wrong. You know, yeah. um, if you're looking at history, you need to say, well – Am I right? What does the evidence say? Uh, and that has always been my position when, when I prepared this book. Uh, there was one particular reference I came across, uh, I think it was in Claudia Orange's original book on the Treaty of Waitangi, where she said that Hone Hiki uh, had chopped down the flagpole, um, one, of, one of the many times he'd chopped down the flagpole in, in the Northern War, because he wanted to see two flags flying. And, and, and you know, the inference that she drew from that was that he wanted to see the the Union Jack and the flag of the United Tribes flying on the flagpole in in an expression of the partnership, which apparently he had understood he had agreed to at Waitangi. So I thought, well, and she gave a reference for for that. I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the way it was understood. I better go and check this reference. So I actually had to go to the Auckland Museum Library uh, to, to check it because that's where the document was held. So I made an appointment, went up there, they got the document out for me, and I read it. It was actually John Hobbs's journal, um, a document from the time. Who was John Hobbs? 
John Hobbs was one of the missionaries in the in the Bay of mm-hmm. Islands. I think he was in Hokianga, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a fair bit to do with proceedings around around the treaty and around the Northern War. And he'd made some comments about what Hone had said. And when I read the comments, I thought, well, it actually doesn't quite say that Hone wanted to see two flags flying. Um, it said something a little bit different. I can understand how uh, Orange had, had drawn an inference from that, but I thought it was an implausible inference uh, in the face of all the other evidence. And, in uh, fact, so, I, I, sorry, carry on. No, you, you carry on. Uh, didn't he fly the US flag? Well, exactly. Uh, there are <laughs> there are many things Horney did during the Northern War, and perhaps <laughs> the most telling was that throughout the war, from his waka, he flew the Stars and Stripes. Isn't because, that great? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I bet Claudia Orange doesn't, re- doesn't report that. No, no. Well, actually, she may have, but I, I can't recall. Uh, but the He was the an American was, imperialist. Yeah, well, the point was that Hone had sort of been influenced by some Americans in the Bay who were obviously quite anti-British and uh, had, had told him about how the British were really just wanted to enslave him and his people and uh, he should really rise up and throw off British sovereignty. <laughs> so what, what Hone wanted was actually not partnership. He wanted revolution. And the, the flying of the Stars and Stripes on his walker throughout the, the war actually was, was a pretty good indication of that. Yes. Tell me, uh, it must have been tough because you're on your own. I just can't imagine that level of commitment. You you know, you're sitting down dinner with your wife and you say, oh, honey, I'm just going to disappear into the back room and sit online for five hours and read <laughs> these obscure texts. Yeah. And then you've got to be taking notes. Yes. Right? Yes. And it's pretty lonely. And then you must do that night after night after night. And then you've got stashes and stashes of notes and bits of paper and cataloging it and organizing it. And then you must get angry and frustrated because you're like putting this jigsaw puzzle together and you're realizing that we're being very polite to these historians who are paid by us. You're doing it on your own dime who are paid by us because we're saying, oh, well, they sort of made this inference and they give you a citation and everyone assumes that must be right because they're professional historians. And you take the trouble to go and check it and say, hang on, that doesn't quite add up. So you're getting amazed and angry, but you're sort of doing it a little all on your own, aren't you? Who do you discuss it with? Yeah, to to be fair to Claudia Orange, I think her book was was actually a very good book and, um, and I learned a lot from it. Um, but that particular reference, uh, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I have a different view about how you could interpret that. Uh, in terms of writing the book, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a lonely exercise, but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and it was, you seem to hit the nail on the head. There was an awful lot of notes taken from various documents and the highlighting and uh, pulling it together. I did actually spend some time away. Um, we have a wee place in Taupo, and uh, I went down there a number of times just to just to try and consolidate it and pull it together. I did make a mistake because um, when I started writing the book, I had I, I wrote it without putting in the references and, and the citations uh-huh. and the footnotes. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll remember that. I'll come back to it. But of course, when I came back, I found that you know, where did I where did I read that? And and um, there was quite a bit of work to go back and re um, make sure I had 
the references properly cited. And uh, I think that's one of the strengths of the books. People appreciate that everything I say um, pretty much is, is referenced. And there, there is a document that you can find that I've referenced where I've pulled the evidence from. Yes. Well, I'm a footnote sort of guy. So I really appreciated that because I thought, oh, I wonder where he got that from. And I'd look at it. I didn't go to the original source, but I could see where you'd got it from. Yeah. Now let's get. People need, you to, ever, people need to be confident about that. Yeah. You, you're, not, you're not making this up. This is yeah. it's fully referenced. It's, it's fully researched. And and, uh, and and as you say, I, I was not trying to give my view. I was actually trying to let people speak from our history. Mm. People, it's its power. Uh, exactly. And as you say, some rather wonderful people. You know, people Beautiful. like Tamati Wakanene, yeah. um, who in the Northern War, it wasn't just that he was they had a sophisticated view, but they they were people of integrity. Yes. And and when Hone wanted to revolution, uh Tamati comes along and says, you know what, we I agreed to the somebody the crown in this country, and I intend to keep my word, even though he was equally um unhappy about some of the things that had developed post signing of the treaty. Uh, but he was committed to dialogue about that rather than revolution, and he was a man of his word. And unfortunately, as you say, many of the modernists cast a slur upon the character of these people, saying that yes. somehow they were they were um, you know acting for their own carefully calibrated reasons. I think one mm. of them says, you know, and it's like, well, hang on, this was an honourable guy who was actually standing up and uh, doing his best to maintain law and order in New Zealand in accordance with the agreement that he had made. And uh, people like that deserve our respect. And and, and he had huge mana. Right? He did, yeah, and very much. He so. he had huge mana because I didn't quite understand this, but he was a warrior. Absolutely, he, he, so was he had of, he had done his fighting. Absolutely, and he was one of the senior chiefs in Napuhi, and uh, he was very influential in actually seeing the treaty accepted and signed. You know, when the treaty was first mooted um, uh, in, in the debate at Waitangi, many chiefs were very reluctant, and uh, they were reluctant precisely because they knew that it was going to establish a higher authority in the land, and they didn't want to, their chieftainship to become under that authority. Mm. Um, no one was under the illusion that there was some sort of shared constitutional partnership being set no. up. Um, so many of the chiefs were quite reluctant. Uh, Tamati comes in and and sways the entire tone of the meeting and says, look, you know, we we this is necessary. We need, he was quite pragmatic. We need a central governing authority in these islands. Uh, we've we've accepted some of the bad things from British society. We now need to accept some government as well. So he was quite crucial in swaying uh you know many many chiefs to sign the treaty. And then he was very um as I say he he did his best to keep his word and to defend the treaty. And the interesting thing is that after the Northern War, um, when Governor Gray was considering some confiscations of land from Hone and his, his allies, uh, Tamati Wakanani comes along and recommends to Gray that, look, if you really want to avoid just confirming in their minds the fact that the, the British are out to get their land, I suggest the best thing for you to do is to act graciously and and not uh, engage in any land confiscation. And Gray followed his advice. So there you have a leader who is, um, you know, he knew how to fight, but he also knew how to maintain the peace. Mm. 
no, that is, uh, I love that story of that guy and that Honi Hiki comes across. He was the first chief to sign the treaty yeah. and and the first to run away from it. And he actually, I was shocked to learn that he killed those sailors who on the third or fourth time he chopped the flag down, he killed the, the sailors. I mean, he was murderous. And yeah, I mean, the Russell in the Northern War, you know, after the, I think it was the fourth time the flagpole was, was chopped down, basically uh, Hune and Kawiti, his ally, uh, raided and sacked Russell. And if you go to Russell now uh, and go to the little church there in Russell, you'll see bullet holes in it from, from the mm-hmm. battle that ensued. Uh, you'll see the graves of people, uh, some of the sailors who had been defending the flagpole and the city and, and the churchyard there. So. It was it was a nasty business. The it's a nasty War. business. And, it was uh, a very very nasty business. And I mean, yeah. again, we should all know this history. And to my shame, I don't know it well. And again, that's why I enjoyed your book because I find myself rather enjoying histories of other places because right. I feel as though when I read a local history. I'm being politicized, you know, that it feels yeah. too politicized to me. I, I want to go um through this with you. Why did you call the book One Sun in the Sky? Um, because there was a story, uh, and I tell this at the beginning of the book, and uh, I think this is what also people like about the book. There's quite a few just stories from history, and, and people can mm. relate to stories. Uh in 1908, uh uh, Tuhoi chief Rua Kenana uh, had some questions on the issue of sovereignty, and he met with Sir Joseph Ward, who was the then Prime Minister, and uh, they met on the beach, I think, at Fakatane. And uh, Rua Kenana was saying, you know, suggesting that you know that he he hadn't given up his sovereignty, and uh, and Ward basically replied, look, when it comes to sovereignty, there can only be one sun in the sky, and. Uh, and Kenana actually considered that for a moment and thought, well, that's actually quite true. And he went home to up into his two-hoy stronghold and raised up the Union Jack uh, and wrote some words on it saying, one law for all. Now, as it turned out, Tuhoi weren't particularly well treated by the Crown, uh, as, as along with many other tribes, in terms of the one law for all. The, 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 the Crown often did not honour the law when it came to its own people, the Maori people. So... But that's that's where the one sun in the sky came from, you know. No, it's a beautiful story, and um, and um, I want now to go into the text of the treaty, sure. Because what I'm told now, it seems to me you've got very good pronunciation of Tereo. Are you a little bit able to read Tereo? Uh, no, I've, I just try hard to be a bit better in my pronunciation because I, okay. I think it's important. I, I love of course Maori it language. Is. I think it's a good thing that uh, we're seeing more Maori language around. I, I think that's part of who we are as New Zealanders, and uh, I try I try to, to do well. <laughs> well, I read the English text of the treaty, and I think it's a beautiful text because it's so simple. I think it's, I remember counting it once, it's 147 words or something. It is so simple and yet so powerful and so clear. Now, the thing 
so clear, crystal clear, right, to me. Right. By the way, parenthetically, how shocking is it that Jacinda Ardern and Chris Hipkins don't know the three articles of the treaty? Yeah, I'm not sure about Chris, but certainly Jacinda, uh, when she was asked, she was at Waitangi, actually, and she was asked to... um, you know, what are the three articles of the treaty? This was about three or four years ago. She didn't know, um, which I, I actually did find quite shocking because here she was, the prime minister of a government that had set up an office of of treaty, crown treaty relations. And, and you know, she said all the right things at, at Waitangi about partnership, blah, 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 but she didn't even know what the treaty said. Um, so I did find not, that not quite even shocking. the first Not even the first article. No, I think she. Had, I think she had to have some of her Maori MPs behind. Yeah, Willie her. Jackson Willie, was. Willie Jackson was, was whispering in her ear what the, well, what the correct Chris, answer was. Poor Chris Hipkins got asked, and he completely, he doesn't know what a woman is or what the treaty says, and he didn't have <laughs> Willie Jackson helping him. Right. And like I was looking at that, and I'd expect a primary school ch- child to know that. Well, it's 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 the sort of the foundation document of our nation. So well, we get told that all the time, right? They're telling us treaty, treaty, and we got on, and then you say to the prime minister, "Okay, what's the first article?" Ah, oh my goodness. Anyway, I was I I was always told, and I'm sure all listeners identify with this, and I'm sure you do too. That oh yes, that's all right. The text in English. But the text in Maori is different. And under the UN, it's the indigenous language that takes precedence. And therefore, uh, your understanding is all up the buoy. Yeah. And I sort of shrug and I think, well, I don't know, because, you know, it would be if it was written in German, I'd have to take your word for it, or Latin, I'd have to take your word for it. So I'm sort of taking these people's word for it, but I'm looking at these people that are telling me this, and I'm thinking, you don't strike me as the most trusty person to be relying on this interpretation. And I do notice that your interpretation sort of suits your politics and your financial interests. But you come in with this chapter and you explain the text of the treaty. Go for it. Tell us. Right. Well, I suppose the first thing, Rodney, I'd say about the text is it's actually not the most important thing. We 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 often, uh, you know, the whole treaty debate comes down to how two words in, in the treaty text are interpreted, you know, like uh, kawanatanga and rangatiratanga. Um, but actually, let's face it, at Waitangi, they didn't hand out copies. They didn't go around and photocopy a whole bunch of copies of the text, give them for everybody all the chiefs to read, and they went through it word by word. You know, it was actually the the, the core of what happened at Waitangi. Yes, the, the text was important. It was read out and it was explained and then it was discussed. And it's actually in the debate and the discussion that you really get a feel for how the treaty mm. was, was understood. But let's just mm. put that aside and come back to the text because, I, I, I mean, I just want people to know that it's, it's important, but it's not the most important way to understand yes. the treaty. Um the, the, the text is pretty straightforward. We have been told for many years that there is this fundamental difference between the two, but actually there isn't. And I mean, what I've used as the basis for my book is not the English text, 
Um, because I think that it's fair to say, look, we, we need to know what the Te Reo text said. And um, so I've actually used that pretty much as the basis for my book. Uh, but it's just as straightforward. In fact, it's more straightforward. When, when you look at uh, Professor Sir Hugh Kafaru's back translation, because he, he took the Te Reo text and then he back translated it into English. So you get, um, and in that back translation, you get a very straightforward explanation of what the treaty is about. The English version is a little bit flowery and legal in its language. Uh, the Maori version, back translated into English, is quite straightforward. For instance, Article 1 uh, in, in the back translated version simply says, you know, that the chiefs agree um, to give absolutely to the Queen of England forever the complete government over their land. Now, that's that's quite straight. I, I, I have trouble seeing a lot of ambiguity in, the, in that. Not uh, a lot of wiggle room. No, there's not. And, that's and a, Sir Hugh's trans back translation was done when? I think it was done in the, the 80s. Um, Professor Sir Hugh Kafaro has now passed on. He was he was actually a member of the Waitangi Tribunal. And, uh, you know, that translation, I think, is on the on the official treaty website, the government's website. Okay. So it, it's, it carries uh, uh, mana, it carries a lot of weight. People sort of see it as the official back translation. And Tell I, us that I, first article again. So it's basically that the chiefs agree to give absolutely to the Queen of England forever the complete government over their land. Now, when I say I'm just, that, I'm just listening here, you and I didn't hear partnership. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is, when I say that to people, they often say to me, "Oh, that's the English version." I say, "Well, actually, it's not. It's the today version, uh, back translated, and it's actually much more straightforward than the English version." Um, and yes, Article 2 guarantees chieftainship, but you need to understand chieftainship, rangatiratanga, within the context of the whole of the treaty. You know, you can't just take one word and say, mm. um, therefore, well, you know, this means that the chiefs retained independence. How can you retain independence when you've just given up complete of government course. over your land in the, in the article prior? Yeah. So uh, it makes it makes no sense. And, and you know, and it's interesting that the, the word kawanatanga um, has after it katoa, you know, because when, when, katoa means like all-encompassing, um, everyone, everybody. When people say tenakoto katoa, they mean everybody. That's what katoa means, everybody. So you're talking about te kawanatanga katoa. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the all-encompassing government. And it's not over, it's not over the Pākehā lands that this is given to the governor. It's over their land, the Rato Finua, over their land. So the, the the text is pretty straightforward. And there are arguments made, um, for instance, by Claudia Orange, that uh, Kawanatanga is a lesser and vague form of, of sovereignty that um, so, you know, as opposed to Rangatiratanga. But actually, and she and she says this is because of how Maori would have understood Kawanatanga from the New Testament because the New Testament had been printed 1837, was very widespread. Uh, this is the Maori New Testament. And she's right. That would have been very influential. But she's wrong because I don't think she's, she understands the Bible um, in terms of how that would have influenced them because Kawana in the New Testament is a very specific form of leadership. And it's a leadership associated with kings uh, and emperors and it's a very practical leadership. I mean, Pilate in the New Testament is described as a kawana. 
Pilate was the one who had the power of life and death over Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, there are other governors in the, in the book of Acts in the New Testament who had the power to imprison, the power to release. And, and it was always understood that they represented the authority of Rome. So, in effect, a koana, um, and koana tanga, you know, a governorship, was a good expression of what was happening in the Treaty for Māori because it showed that there was sovereignty from another country coming in and being expressed within New Zealand. Mm. And this was not something that was being imposed. It was a proposition that was put to them as uh, something they could voluntarily enter into. Uh, they debated it. Uh, there, as I say, there was there were many who were quite reluctant at first. They didn't want to come under another authority, but in the end, uh, pragmatism uh, won the day, and people saw that this was probably a sensible thing to do. And to finish it, what does the third article say in the back translation? Uh, the third article is pretty straightforward. It's just that the uh, Māori people are given all the rights and, and responsibilities of British citizens. Mm. So to help Chris Hapkins and Jacinda, we can say Article 1, there's one sun in the sky, yep. and the sovereign uh, through the governor exercises ultimate authority over the uh, country. Article number two, we recognise the chiefs. We're not going to depose the chiefs. We're not going to kill the chiefs. We're not going to relegate the chiefs. And we're going to protect their interests in land and, yes. and their treasures. Yes. And uh, we're going to honour their chieftainship. Um, yes. We won't undermine their chieftainship. Yep. And the history of self-determination, and, and I, I'll be honest, I think we need to find probably new ways to do that today. Yeah. Uh, but then, that's not the same as them being equal um, no. with the Queen. No, and then the third article is you are British citizens. Yeah. Like every other person in New Zealand, yes. everyone is equal under the law. And, I mean, it could not be more to anyone schooled in the principles of civil society and the Western tradition. It could not be clearer. No, and I think it was clear for about 150 years. Yes, um, now we'll come on to that. The debate, your next chapter, we do the text. Oh, by the way, I Henry Williams, what a man. Oh, he's a, he's a great New Zealand. He's probably, he and Tamati Wakanane are probably the two greatest New Zealanders, I think, that have yeah. ever lived. Tell us, and his son, so Henry Williams, he's the missionary that translated the English version. He did the forward translation, if you like. So Hugh did the backward translation. Yeah. He translated it into Maori, and he was so much more significant in this book, and you're telling, than, say, Hobson. He was an amazing man and very oh, respected. Absolutely. I mean, Henry Williams had been in New Zealand for 20 years prior to this. He had been leading uh, the Anglican mission in the Bay of Islands. Uh, he had been responsible for um, him, and, him and his team of missionaries, and there were Wesleyan missionaries as well, not just uh, not just Anglican, had been responsible for what became an amazing transformation uh, among Maori society of changing from quite a, uh, a violent and, um, well, brutal society in some ways to to uh, the, the power of the gospel had gone forth across all of New mm. Zealand and quite a change, a transformation among Maori. Uh, and, so, and some observers had said, look, uh, New Zealand's almost now a Christian country uh, among yes. Maori people. 
So Henry Williams had been instrumental in that. He loved the Maori people. He'd given up a life in England. He'd sailed across the sea. I don't know, it took six months to get here on a cockroach-infested ship with his family. Um, he didn't take a salary uh, from the Missionary Society. He was ex-Royal Navy. He, he took a half pension from that. He he put his life in danger many, many times to try and mediate between warring tribes. I um, mean, his wife wrote home once that she was concerned about this because, as she said to her friend, as we know, Henry presents a very broad front. Um, so, <laughs> and um, yeah, so he was a great guy. He and was he, a great guy. He, yeah, and he'd been, um, people say he was the wrong man to, to translate the treaty, but actually he was the perfect man because he had been uh, involved with Maori for 20 years. He'd been out uh, with war parties trying to negotiate peace deals. He knew tikanga. He knew the language. You read his journals, you find that he's been up all night conversing with local Maori at his tent door on his, on his trips. So he was exactly the right man. He, he loved the people. He'd given up so much to come and serve them. He knew the language, and he did an honest and faithful job in translating the treaty. And nowadays, it is absolutely reprehensible, the slur that is made against him. People say, well, he was being dishonest and disingenuous, it's and he twisted terrible. the wording. It is it's terrible. just not true. It is just not true. He did it. He said later that his task was to try and faithfully translate the English into Māori, recognising the challenges, because in terms of the language difference, uh, but retaining the spirit and the tenor entirely. And that's what he did. And, of course, as a young boy, he was in the Royal Navy and yep. he was involved in the Napoleonic Wars, which mm -hmm. is quite something. Yeah, he was certainly he saw action. I'm not sure if it was yeah. in the Napoleonic Wars, but he saw some pretty severe action. Um, and uh, one of the reasons, one of the uh, reasons he'd become a pacifist because he said to yes. uh, Maori, who said to him, well, "You know, why why won't you fight?" Um, was because look, I've done my fighting. He said, and um, he, yeah. he wasn't. I might be wrong about that. I he wasn't that. I, I I might be wrong. I'll double check. But I because I got fast in your book. I got so fascinated by. The motivation of these men, um, the commitment that they had, their integrity um, on all sides, these leaders that emerged. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the idea that he is slurred and denigrated as some sort of greedy, corrupt colonialist, this yeah. is so awful. And like I said, you read this book and you become proud. And I want to ask you now, Ewan, about the debate because that is so crucial to the story, the debate that occurred at Waitangi and around the country, and also that Henry went out of his way to explain what the treaty meant. They went out of their way. It wasn't like quick sign this. I mean, it could have not been signed, right? Uh, absolutely. And one of the commentators who was there Belton Matthew, he was like a, a surveyor brought in by the Crown to help with surveying land. He was at the proceedings, and he said at one moment things looked quite blue, he said, <laughs> meaning that he thought that, that they weren't going to get the treaty signed. And I, I can't recall if that was at uh, Waitangi or at Hokianga, uh, which was the next biggest mm. signing place. So we're going um, to go on. I, we're going to go on to that debate, but I suddenly realised I've got to bring – listeners tuning in up to date. Uh, I'm talking to Ewan McKean, McQueen, who's written this wonderful book 
called One Sun in the Sky, The Untold Story of Sovereignty and the Treaty of Waitangi. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, you can buy it off Ewan. Uh, you can get it at your library, I'm sure, if you ask. Um, please read it. Um, please get people you know to read it. You will want to read it. It is, I don't talk up New Zealand books at all, but this is one um, that should be read. It should also be read by our young people just to immunize them from the politics of the treaty and to put that to one side to understand the history. So we're talking to Ewan. Um, you can contact him through the webpage www, I think I did three W's, dot one sun in the sky, all one word dot com. And you can order a copy of it. Please do make it a gift or get it from the library. And we're with Ewan and we're up to fascinating accounts, fascinating story, the debate around the treaty. Ewan, take it away. Yeah, well, just, just to note that it is actually in libraries all across New Zealand. Oh, um, good. And you, you can, um, I've been selling it online. Uh, sometimes I get orders from bookshops and, and I'm happy to provide to bookshops. Um, but it's primarily online. There's actually nearly been 2,000 copies gone out. Oh, wow, um, that's a good online. seller. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, and and libraries, a lot of the libraries in the main centres have them. I mean, Auckland Library, last time I looked, had nine copies, mm. and it had 33 hold requests on, wow. on those copies because uh, people people are obviously quite keen. It's been it's been quite a popular book. But, um, yeah, the, the, the debates. And as, as I say, I think it's in the debates that we really get a grasp of how the tribal leaders understood what they were agreeing to. And at both, there were two main debates. One was at Waitangi, of course, which was the first debate on, on February the 6th. Um, well, actually, it was on February the 5th. It was the, um, the day before um, it was signed. Uh, and then the next one was in uh, about a week later in Manunu, which is uh, in Hokianga, and there another couple of thousand chiefs turned up there. And in both of those debates, uh, it started off with with tribal leaders being actually quite reluctant to sign the proposition that had been put to them. The proposition that uh, they would come under crown authority. Uh, yes, their chieftainship would be honoured. Their, their their land rights would be protected. Uh, they would become British citizens, uh, but they were reluctant because they didn't want to bring their chieftainship under crown authority. And so in both debates, you see um, and you hear, because and, and I have to say, we know this because records were kept. Uh, there were, there were at Waitangi, there was uh, records kept by William Colenza, who was there. And, and at Manunu, there was, I think it was John Hobbs, kept records uh, of what was said. So we can see what people were saying. We can read it. Um, Did so the Maori so speak in English? Uh, I think some did, and, and probably many didn't. But the people who kept the notes were people who were fluent in today. Isn't that so, amazing? Yeah. Mm. And actually, William Colenso, uh, he he didn't he took notes at the time. He didn't publish them until uh, many years later. Uh, but at the time, he also gave his notes to William Busby, who was there just to check them and to make sure that yes, that's that's what was said. And of course, it's not going to be perfect word for word, no, but. No. I mean, uh, you, you get very much the, the feel for what was said and, and the tone of the meetings. And the tone of the meetings in both places started off with, no, we're not interested, you know. Uh, but as as more uh, people spoke and as more assurances were given, 
by by Henry Williams, by by Hobson, that the Crown would act in good faith. Uh, the Crown would act to protect their interests. Uh, then people started to say, you know, actually we we do need we do need some sort of governing structure uh, in New Zealand to promote peace, to promote trade, to promote opportunity, um, to avoid the the sort of lawlessness that is is prevalent. And so people signed up. And uh, and nowadays, of course, we're told that uh, the the fact that Hobson assured them of the government's protection was somehow an assurance of equal partnership. Well, no, it wasn't. It was simply an assurance that the government would act in good faith uh, and and protecting the interests of Māori as citizens of New Zealand like everybody else. Um, unfortunately, of course, even though those assurances were made in all sincerity, the, the Crown did not uh, subsequently act in good faith yes. in many situations, which is why we had uh, the land wars and many of the injustices which followed. And so, you know, in this book, I'm not trying to say that our history has been rosy. You don't need to. No. You don't need to. It's no. not. It's, and, and that's the thing about history is and the discussion of history and the argument about history is you get to the facts and the pertinent facts hmm. and obviously not everything's included and then someone can come up oh you missed this bit or uh professor orange you took a i think an incorrect inference from this bit you know and that's how we improve our understanding but the key Definitely. thing about that, those debates was they were held they were, and and they were quite, you know, they went on for many hours. And actually, at Waitangi, uh, they had the debate. Then they, the chiefs, retired across the river to uh, Te Ti Marae um, uh, to debate it further into the night. And uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, Henry Williams was called upon to come and and bring some advice to them. And he he later wrote that I went and and explained to them. Again, clause by clause, what the treaty was about, explaining to them that they would become one with the English people under one sovereign, under one law. You know, it was very clear mm. <laughs> what was the proposition that was being put. Uh, mm. Nobody at that debate was talking about the nuances of Rangatiratanga versus Kawanatanga, no. and, and Kawanatanga didn't really mean sovereignty, it only meant governance. And, and you know, of course, they weren't talking like that. It's, it's a modern take. On the whole thing, that, and um, that modern take is monolithic across yeah. universities and academia. Yeah, monolithic across all government departments. Monolithic in our education system for our kids and universities, and unchallengeable. Yeah, it is, and and that's. That's part of the problem, and, and it's not just in this space either. There are many spaces now in public debate in New Zealand and, in fact, in the West, where free speech and free debate is being stifled. Um, there is only one particular view that is accepted, and and it's it's true in, in this space as I well. I wouldn't want to be my little 12-year-old uh, reading your book <laughs> and turning up to school and saying, hang on a minute. I've read this book, and because the teacher wouldn't know. No, they wouldn't, um, and it's, it, that's what's sad about it. I mean, the new history curriculum that was proposed was very much predicated upon the, the modernist narrative. Um, 
it, it was just assumed that the chiefs didn't give up sovereignty. Instead, we had this sort of constitutional partnership agreed to, and and the whole curriculum's built around that. It's not like they're, they're not encouraged to debate. Is this the case? What was yeah. the treaty proposal? Let's yeah, well, look at the evidence. Why... No one is encouraged to look at the evidence. Um, but you know, I, this would be a bit, a little bit positive. I mean, this book. Uh, uh, looks at the evidence. Uh, it's been well received. Uh, it is, as I say, it's, it's two thousand copies out there already. I'm, I'm hoping to get to ten thousand. Um, yeah, and well. many libraries across New Zealand have, have taken copies uh, because it, uh, they realise that there needs to be uh, an alternative viewpoint, perhaps. Listen to this, Amana. I got this. You got this beautiful picture, photo that you've taken of uh, Tamati Walker. Nini, his uh, memorial at the churchyard at Russell. That's right, just, yeah. It just says this, in memory of Tamati Wakinini, chief of Napui, the first to welcome the Queen's sovereignty of New Zealand, a consistent supporter of the Pākehā, this stone is erected by the government of the colony, which for upwards of 31 years he faithfully upheld. Sage in council, renowned in war, he died regretted by all the inhabitants of these islands at Russell on the 4th of August, and I don't know the date because you cut it, you cropped it off. Yes, but... <laughs> well, yeah, that was a bit of a problem. I should have taken the photo again, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but what a, what a, um, what a role model of a man. Absolutely. And, of course, if someone and... had tried to create such a, a, a um, memorial today, it would have had very different wording. Yes, um, and, and if my daughter quoted him at school, she would be a racist. Yes, unfortunately. Um, now, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're getting the real talk with Ewan McQueen. He's just been this wonderful author of this book. Tell us about the Flagstaff, because this is a story that every New Zealander knows or thinks they know. Tell us about the Flagstaff. Well, I, I um, of course, the Flagstaff we're talking about is at Mikey Hill at Russell, um, the, the Flagstaff that uh, Honeheke chopped down um, several times before the, the Northern War broke out. And um, everybody knows how Hone chopped down the flagpole. That, that's quite commonly known. But what people don't know is how it got put back up again. And I didn't know this either until I actually visited the flag staff, myself, and um, if, have you been up there, Rodney? Yes. Yeah, and if, did you see the plaque underneath it? No, I can't recall, so tell me. Uh, okay, so there's actually a plaque uh, at the bottom of the flagpole telling the story of how it was re-erected, mm. and it was actually put back up by the tribes who had been in rebellion in the Northern War. So uh, ka- uh, ancestors of Kawiti and, and Honheki put the, tr- put the flagpole back up. And they did so in 1858. It had it had it had not been put back up after the Northern War. Uh, Governor, that's Gray's right. Been, yeah, 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 I got that. I remember that from your book, not from yeah. being there. And yeah. and it's a wonderful story. Yeah, Governor Gray had not had decided. Oh, let's just forget about the flag staff. Let's not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the battles had been fought. Let's not cause more trouble with the flag staff. Let's just leave it for the moment. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. And um, maybe Tamati was advising him again. And uh, He didn't do a victory lap, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't do a victory lap. Uh, and uh, But anyway, so we get to 1858. 
the plague's are still not restored. Uh, the Kingitanga has has arisen in the south, and there are envoys coming north to try and convince uh, the Napui up there to join forces, the Kingitanga. And uh, and they simply said, you know what, we've got our own queen. We we don't we don't need a new king. <laughs> we we have our own queen. And as in as a, as a statement, an affirmation of that. They went and restored the flagstaff, and they raised the Union Jack on it. Um, so that is... That's not partnership. That's that, not partnership. Well, it's not. And um, it was an, a very straightforward affirmation of this, their um, loyalty and, to the And Honey Hickey kept cutting the flag down he, he because, as you describe it, he was suffering financially because of government decisions. Yeah, I, I mean... He was yeah. tolling boats, wasn't he? Ships that were turning up. That, that's right. I mean, there are, there are a number of reasons that lead to the Northern War. It's interesting. The Northern War is quite different from what happened in the Land Wars mm-hmm. uh, in the 1860s. The Northern War was 1845, the Hone. And um, there had been some changes after 1840. The capital had moved to Auckland, and uh, that was probably the major problem because that led to a collapse in uh, the economy in the Bay of Islands. Uh, land sales collapsed. And the irony is that uh, Honey and other chiefs wanted to sell more land, but they couldn't now because the, the demand had completely fallen away, uh, whereas the land wars was, were about too much land getting yes. sold. Uh, but in the north, it was the other way around. So you had this collapse in the economy. Um, the governor was put customs duties on, on things coming through Russell, uh, which again put up prices, uh, and of course, because uh, 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 you're right, Honey and Pomari, uh, his cousin, I think, were, they used to toll ships coming into the Bay of Islands before the treaty, five pounds a ship. And uh, when the treaty was signed, of course, the ships coming in said to him, "Well, you know, we don't have to recognise um, your, your authority in this. There is now a government in this country, so you don't have the authority to toll us." So there are. You know, there were a number of reasons why Honey was uh, had his nose out of joint. Uh, he so also had, and I'm look, I'm I'm not trying to sound like I am an expert because all I know is what I read in your book. Um, but he also had settlers in his ear, and these settlers yeah. were American. Yeah. Um, you also suggest in your book that they had their own interests; they were scallywags. And they wanted to party up and also buy land directly from the Maori, not go through the mediation of the Crown. Yeah. And so they were sowing rebellious thoughts in his head. They, they were, as, as I mentioned before, I think. These were Americans who uh, were not sympathetic to the British Crown at all. And, and not, the cream was, of, not the cream of society necessarily. No, no. And, of course, you know, the, the Americans had just fought um, not that long before a war of independence against the mm. British crown. So there, there wasn't a lot of love lost between Americans and, and, mm. and the British crown at that point. So these had been in, in Honey's ear and they were raising doubts in his mind about what really were the true intentions of the British. And then at a critical moment, and I think this is very important, um, there had been a sort of select committee report done in London by the by the British government called the Howick Report and, and dealing it talked about how to deal with what they considered to be wastelands 
So uh, the treaty had guaranteed to Maori all their land, uh, but there was this pressure to say, well, actually, land not occupied by Maori will just treat as wastelands and we don't mm. have to worry about them. But mm. that, that was completely anathema to the chiefs. They knew every acre of, of their land, even if they didn't occupy it. Mm. Um, and there was this, this recommendation in this report that the government treat wastelands as not owned by Maori. Um, and that got dropped into the mix at this point as well. And that was like a bomb going off, you know. <laughs> it was like, that. Hone's definitely, man, they're going to come take our land. Yes. Now, as it transpired, that report was, the recommendation of that report was never implemented um, because wiser heads in New Zealand knew the full story about how Māori viewed their land, and so that it just wasn't done. But it, it acted as a, a spark, really, um, igniting the, the Northern War. And uh, and But as I say, Hone only acted pretty much on his own with one other chief called Kawiti. Uh, there were many, many other chiefs who remained loyal to the Crown, and they were unhappy about the situation up there as well, but they knew what they had agreed to, and they intended to stick to it. Mm. And so he chopped the flagstaff down, I think, four times, one time murdering uh, the sailors. And the final on, time, was, yeah. yeah. Went on the rampage, and the Northern War was involved whom? Well, it involved uh, Hone and Kawiti and their tribes, and then there were the, uh, initially there were, there wasn't many government troops up there. Uh, there was only a very small number. So initially, it was actually Tamati Wakanene who provided um, some resistance to to Hone, and then uh, I think Colonel Despard turned up with with more troops from the south, and there was there were a number of battles fought, and eventually. Uh, the pa at Ruta Pekapeka was taken and um, the enemy was dispersed. And that's how the, the war ended. Um, More with a murmur than a bang. Eg- exactly, yeah. And then, of course, we had uh, Tamati Wakanene recommending there be no um, confiscation of land mm. and, and Governor Gray, um, you know, reached out to both Onaheke and Kawiti and so, sort of things just settled down again after that. Yeah. And ultimately, Hone Hickey died of natural causes, I think TB, from, from your memory of your book. Um, I, he, I, I, I don't he, know, actually. I, I, he, I know wasn't, he wasn't hung. No, not at all. No, there was no, uh, no follow-through in terms of um, which again, trials. Or, which, yeah. again, is astonishingly benevolent. Well, when you see what happened, you know, you, you, you think today someone moved into, uh, I don't know, where, where do you live? Arrowtown. Okay, so someone moved into Arrowtown and, and, and burnt all the all the buildings down and shot a number of people. And it's like, yeah. You'd think there'd be some consequences, but um, I was uh, a bit I was a bit disappointed about that bit because I thought, you know, he got away with it, sort of, but. Um, Always, always through this, apart from some notable exceptions, on both sides, you always felt that they had their eye to the bigger picture. Who's, who, who are you talking about? Sorry, uh, the leaders, Maori and non-Maori. Yeah, it, they it, had it, their it, eye on the bigger picture. It wasn't about oh well, Honey did this, let's hang him. It yeah. was about, no, no, we need to be restoring law and order, not inflaming situations. And just that concept of not putting the flagstaff back 
Um, And then literally 13, 15 years later, the tribe themselves putting it back up. I mean, that's such a powerful, powerful, powerful story that sends a shiver down your back, actually. Yeah, it does. And and I think in the early years after the treaty, there was a lot. Things actually went better. It wasn't until you got you got more pressure for land developing during the 1850s uh, that the crown started to act in some pretty dubious ways. Well, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Please text us 2057 uh, or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We're having an extended conversation uh, with Ewan McQueen, the author of this just this great book. It's a beautiful read, and it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful history. If you read this, you'll end up like me, a total bore, uh, talking about the book. And the book is called One Sun in the Sky. And I feel so privileged to have Ewan uh, discussing it with us because um, he really has done an outstanding job. So now we get to what we know as the land wars. Tell us about that. Well, actually, they used to be known as the land wars. Yeah. Uh, and in in recent times, uh, there has been a move to rename them as the New Zealand wars, or as as Vincent O'Malley called them, the Great War for New Zealand. So it used to be understood as the wars were about land, but now we're pretty much led to believe that no, the laws, the, the wars were about sovereignty. Because ah. that, yeah, that fits the modern paradigm uh, a lot better, you know, in terms of, well, we had these wars because the Crown had not honoured uh, the dual sovereignty, the constitutional partnership, so supposedly agreed in the treaty. And that's why we really had these wars. But actually, when you look at the evidence and you go back and look at the historical documents, it's very clear that the wars were primarily about loss of land. Uh, through dubious crown practices because there had been a lot of pressure coming off from settlers wanting land. Uh, Maori were doing very well using their land. They, they you know, I think uh, John Gorst describes, he, he was uh, an agent for Governor Gray, he described what was happening in the Waikato before the land wars in terms of 10 flour mills, another eight being built, um, lots of industry and, and economic... ships. Yeah, yeah, like it's 58, I think, sailing ships. And, can and you imagine things. that? Can you just uh, picture that, you know, the Maori in the 1850s and uh, had sailing ships, 58 sailing ships sailing yeah. to Australia and further afield. Yeah. They had flour mills, flour yeah. mills, uh, crops, um, incredibly industrious and doing extremely well. They were. And uh, they were doing well because New Zealand is a great country and it's a, it's a very productive land. Um, and also what an amazing people. Absolutely, yeah. That, yeah. That, and, and they were industrious, as you say, and they were, they were taking, making the most of the opportunities that the treaty had created in terms of trade, uh, yeah. in terms of new technology coming into the country. Um, so they were doing but, well. And, but they were all- and, and, and just to interrupt you there, I'm sorry to do this to you. That's all right. Um, but – what an extraordinary thing the missionaries did. Because yes. it was all, all a consequence of the missionaries um, reaching out 
and teaching uh, the gospel, yes. teaching thereby, if you like, the traditions of Western civilization, but also teaching them basic, well, technology. Yeah. You I know, mean, like they didn't, the missionaries didn't just, oh, there's those poor Maoris down in that par. They were there teaching them to, the kids to read and write, the adults to read and write, teaching yeah. them the Bible, translating the Bible, and teaching them how to be self-sufficient and productive and amazing by the missionaries, but the Maori themselves lapped it up. Absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the prime centres of, of development was around Matamata, uh, a village called Peria, um, which was um, set up by uh, Wurimu Tamihana Tarapipita Wahara, who was a Christian chief, and he set up this Christian village, and it was run according to biblical precepts, and it was, you know, very productive. Had a had a flour mill, had a, a big church. I think it was New Zealand's first mega church was in Peria. Had <laughs> a church church for a thousand people, a thousand Maori people in this church. Um, but yeah, lots of industry, lots of orchards, doing very well. And but of we course, should be so are, proud of that, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely, we should. We should, and unfortunately, the missionaries get a very bad rap in, yes. in New Zealand, as they do in many countries. But uh, we owe them quite a debt of gratitude for for the work that they did, yeah. and that, you know they weren't perfect. Let's no, no. Say, you can always find someone who did something wrong. Well, no matter what group you're talking about, yeah. Well, um, we're we're the the Bible teaches us we're human, absolutely, and yeah. uh, we have our failings, absolutely. And, um, I love now quoting that Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, insight when he suffered more than any person uh, terrible uh, from people and his learning him saying that he realized that good and evil isn't a line that runs between people. So you can't sit there and say, well, I'm a good person and that person over there is evil but the good and evil runs through your own heart. Absolutely. And yeah. I think that's such a powerful Christian thought that we love looking at history and creating good and bad people, you know, cowboys yes. good, Indians bad, colonists bad, Maori good. Yes. And in fact, the evil runs through our heart and we're working on our own hearts to be good and banish the evil. And you can see it so clearly in your history of what are what are of people that did their utmost to banish the evil of their own heart and do good, and who now, by our modern view of the world, they were good, they were bad. Yeah, uh, people like to make things black and white, and and history's yeah. always got a, lo a lot of grey. Yeah. Um, but as yeah. you say, you know, the, we, we have all, you know, the Christian message is that we have all fallen short. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, none of us are perfect. We have all fallen short. But there is in Yeshua, in Ihu Karaiti, there is a wonderful Savior who can help us. Yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Maori, Maori people had taken hold of Ihu Karaiti and they had, they had received that help, just like so many Europeans had <laughs> over the yes. century. So they, this they were doing well. And they, they were, were doing well. And, and yeah. the significance of 
it being a land wars, not the New Zealand wars, is the land wars were fought under the crown because the crown was failing in its obligation on the treaty. Yeah, well, the, the it wasn't said, a war to expel the crown. Um, by the time we got to the end of the war, there were some tribal leaders who wanted okay. the crown expelled. Um, okay. But that's that's not how it began. Tell us um, the story. Uh, you know, it began because there had been increasing settler pressure for land because there were a lot of um, people coming to New Zealand and uh, they wanted land. They wanted to do well on the land as well. And uh, so uh, the Crown was under increasing pressure to provide more land. And so whereas previously um, under Governor Gray, actually in the early years, the land sales process had been pretty transparent and had been done quite well, um, and it was purely voluntary, and tribal leaders were consulted, and it was recognised that tribal land was tribal land. It wasn't owned by an individual. Uh, as time went on, Donald McLean, who was in charge of the land purchasing uh, arm of the government, started reverting to some pretty dubious practices like, you know, he wouldn't negotiate. He'd just find one person who was willing to sell. I mean, this was the prime problem. He'd find one person who would sell tribal land that didn't actually belong to just them. It belonged to everybody. Um, and I think it's fair to say that I learned from your book that Governor Gray was an amazing man of vision and integrity, and the politest thing you could say about Mr Donald McLean was he fell a bit short. Uh, he, he did fall a bit short. Um, he, he later came right a little bit because he, he was instrumental in setting up the Maori seats in Parliament. Okay. Um, but, you know, Governor Gray was a mixed bag, but today he gets described as a war criminal, which I think is a load of nonsense. Um, he he was actually did a lot of good things in New Zealand. Um, mm. Sure, he made mistakes, uh, but he did some very good things. As, as opposed to perhaps Governor Gore Brown, who really didn't understand Māori. Gray had a, had a good relationship with Māori. Gore Brown did not. And it was Gore Brown who really brought the land wars, um, who triggered it, because... You know, there was this particular sale in Waitara um, from a chief, um, a, a minor chief of land which didn't belong to him, or and um, it was tribal land. And there was a, a more senior chief who said, no, this belongs to the tribe and we're not selling. Uh, and Gore Brown came along and basically forced the issue and said, no, no, uh, you're, you're, um, uh, this person wants to sell their land they must be able to sell their land. And uh, Wiremu Kingi, uh, who was uh, the, the tribe tribe's leader who didn't want to sell the land, said, no, I'm not selling. And uh, and he initially protested peacefully uh, when the government came on the land to try and survey it. And uh, then he set up a par. Uh, the government sent in troops and you had this, this war break out. Um, but it, it had been on the back of a many years of dodgy land sales practices, uh, Maori becoming increasingly concerned about the loss of land and forming land leagues. And the Kingitanga was exactly that. It was a big land league where uh, tribes joined and they agreed that their land would come under the Kingitanga and it would not be sold. Mm. So uh, that was the genesis of the Kingitanga. Uh, the Kingitanga then got dragged into this conflict because William Kingi went to them and said, I need your support. And, you know, this this thing just 
went to pieces, basically. Um, and there was, I don't know, 3,000 people died, mainly mainly Māori, but Pākehā as well. Uh, atrocities committed on both sides. Uh, History is never black and white. Um, and it, it was a tragic episode, but it was triggered by Crown dodgy land purchasing practices. Because uh, they, were, they were desperate for the land. They didn't care how they did it. Yes. Um, and they went through the pretense of uh, the purchase, and they knew that they weren't consulting with the tribe, and yes. they knew that the tribe, it was their land. And so they just wanted to use the power of the state yeah. to bulldoze through that purchase. Absolutely. And also Gore Brown, uh, there are some who argue that he was just, there was a particular meeting between Rumu Kingi and Gore Brown um, in New Plymouth, um, where uh, uh, Wurrimu Kingi just basically said, I'm not selling, end of story, and walked out. And um, th- some said that Gore Brown took great offence at that. And there was ev- almost even a personal thing about yes. it, you know. Um, but the thing I suppose we need to think, realise about this whole thing is that the Kingi Tanga had arisen and got involved in all of this. And people now, Therefore, look back and say, oh, the Kingi Tanga was, uh, shows that this was an expression of the dual sovereignty agreed in the treaty. The Kingi Tanga was set up because, you know, they, they said, well, you, you, you Europeans have got the Queen, we're going to have the King. You know, this is this two sovereignty thing. But actually, that's it's a complete misrepresentation of, of the roots of the Kingi Tanga and what it was all about. Um, it was set up to protect land. It was never a challenge to crown sovereignty. It became a challenge as the war went on because, um, you know, the Crown basically demanded submission and the King Tonga said, well, you know what? If you're saying that we submit or we lose our land, um, we're just going to fight. So they did. Um, and you can understand why they would do that because it's like, yes. well. <laughs> if I'm in the gonna... fight, I might as well be in for everything. Yeah, exactly. If you're just going to take our land, why mm. wouldn't we fight? Um, so... That, that was that was the roots of the war, and it wasn't about sovereignty. It came to be uh, uh, an issue of some people in rebellion, you could say, but it wasn't really rebellion because it was entirely justified. And got, again, Ewan, you're picking that up, not because that's how you'd like to see it, but this is what the protagonists said. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And um, That's the you know, extraordinary we, thing. It's not... It's not that we're guessing their motivation. They told us. Exactly. And informing, you know, there are records of Pui uh, uh, when the when the Kingi Tongue was being formed and some chiefs said, you know, this is not a good idea. This is clearly going to be a breach of, of the treaty where the, the crown was established as sovereignty in New Zealand. And other chiefs, they didn't say, oh, no, the, the treaty established a dual sovereignty. This is about partnership. They didn't say that at all. Mm. They simply said, you know what? The crown's been breached its covenant. We're not interested anymore in that. You know, so the Kingi Tonga was an alternative governing arrangement to the treaty. It wasn't a fulfillment of the treaty. Mm. It was an alternative being proposed because the crown had been um had had breached the treaty, essentially. Um, How did that those wars end? How did they come to an end? Oh well, the 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 crown um effectively won the wars, um, if you can call 
you know, uh, pressing through with an injustice uh, victory. Um, the uh, battles were fought, um, and the Crown, I think, came into Narawahia, the, the capital of the King movement, in December 1864. Uh, the moderate wing surrendered. Um, the, the more militant wing under Iwi Mano Poto disappeared into the King country, and the king stayed there for, for many years thereafter, but eventually he came out and laid down his arms, I think, in, in, in the 1880s. Um, but I suppose the, the thing that happened, the, the tragedy that happened after the war was that the crown then confiscated large amounts of land um, in, in punishment for so-called mm. rebellion. But let's, so be, you, let's, be, so let's they, be clear. They the, forced, the crown, forced the rebellion through... Yeah. Uh, unjust dealings, yeah. had the rebellion, put the rebellion down, and then confiscated land to yeah. further their own financial interests of the land speculators. Yeah. Uh, but but let, let's let's remember, uh, I think all New Zealanders are pretty pretty much on board with that narrative now because it's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> and okay. and and there have been settlements made. You know that the Tainui settlement has been made, and what what. Um, and you know, land has been returned, compensation, restitution's been made, apologies have been made, and um, and Tainu, I think, have turned their 170 million into over a billion dollars now, mm. and uh, uh, are doing well economically, as have other tribes um, where settlements have been made. And I, I think that's when we talk about these things, we cannot talk about them now without recognizing that they have they have been recognized. Good faith settlements have been made, and we are trying now as a nation to move on positively. Um, what what really makes me uh, concerned is when, particularly our young people, are told the stories without being told that settlements have been made, without being told that yeah we, we've we've faced that. We, we've Haven't made there policy. been sometimes two multiple settlements? There have, and and I, I think in the past probably some of the settlements weren't particularly um, fair, you know. Mm. Uh, so that hints that the grievance didn't go away because the settlement wasn't fair. But the um, grievance hasn't gone away now either, has it? No, and and one could say, well, has has the settlements been fair? And I think that's a that's a a reasonable question yeah. to ask, yeah. and and we should not be afraid to ask that question. Have the settlements been fair? Um, uh, but to be fair, they have to be fair to everyone as well, because you can't yeah. bankrupt the country um, to try and put right something from 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 the past. Uh, we have to take that into account as well. But you also have to say, is is the grievances? I think a lot of the grievance now has moved on from the land and resource issues. Into this constitutional space. Yes. Now, and, the, yeah. Okay. And so, so people are now forming a grievance about the fact that their sovereignty yeah. was stolen, yeah. and and that's why I think you know we've done all this good work in the treaty settlements process about what I would consider to be genuine grievances and genuine injustice, and now we're moving into a space where grievance is being um, fostered and continued on the basis of something that isn't true. And uh, you know, the and. And and the um, agenda of the Marxist, and I use that word absolutely advisedly, the Marxist uh, activists, uh, protesters, 
who were totally fringe in the 70s and 80s, that agenda is now mainstream. Uh, certainly, I, I think the agenda that was considered extreme uh, in the 70s and 80s is now mainstream. And, anyone, and, and, and someone who promotes a book such as I have, I, I'm considered the extremist now. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. well and, you've got a lot going against you because I fear not only are you white, not only are you a male, <laughs> not only are you a Christian, I have yes. a suspicion you're heterosexual. You know, it's yeah, like you, you, could, you could be right about that, Rodney. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 a, you're a um, and you're probably using facts, which and language, so you're just using exerting power over us all. The King of Tanga movement is that the Maori king that we have now? Yes, yes. And how do they choose the king or the queen? Is it a descendant thing? Uh, I, I think it is, and and initially when the when the king was set up, it was uh, the tribes gathered at Pukawa on the shores of Lake Taupo. I think it was eighteen fifty seven or fifty eight, and uh, selected Potato uh, Te Ferefero, who was um, he wasn't a rebel or anything. He wasn't like a rebel in the mould of Honehiki. He was a very respected uh, tribal leader, and um, he could hold the mana of of uh, of many Maori tribes um, and, the, and the Kingitanga. So the roots of the Kingitanga were not some sort of rebellious move against the crown. They were a desire for um, protecting land. And there was also a desire to provide law and order, to be honest, because the crown had failed. Not only were they failing in terms of uh, their dubious land purchasing practices, but the treaty had said, one of, the, one of the benefits of the treaty was supposed to be that the Crown would provide law and order in the land. And yet the Crown had not done that. Uh, they had done that around perhaps European settlements. You could find courts and magistrates and, and you know, uh, uh, all the normal things that you would expect with a with with civil society. But in the rest of the country, uh, Māori had not really seen the Crown do anything. And, and they, they were probably people... Non-Maori European people on the fringes, on the margins, outlaws. Oh, trouble. absolutely! And and as as Tamihana said, you know, when a Maori murders another Maori, the Crown does nothing. Yeah. Um, and so there was a genuine desire for law and order. Wirimu Tamihana, he was he was a Christian guy from Peria. He actually went up to try and meet the governor uh, before setting up the King Italian to try and promote some sort of law and order code under the authority of the governor for the whole of the country. But he, you know, he simply, the governor refused to see him. No, it wasn't quite like that. His juniors, the governor's juniors did not allow Tamihana to meet the governor. So he went home and said, you know what? We need to do something else. We need to take matters. Yeah, we need to take matters into our own hands here. And so that was another one of the driving forces of the King Tanga. Not that they were a upset about the Crown implementing its sovereignty. They were in terms of land practices, but they were upset about the Crown hadn't implemented its sovereignty where it should have <laughs> in terms of law and order. You know. Oh, my um, little girl's going to get in so much trouble at school if she does a school project on this. Now, your next chapter is beautiful. It's 100 Years of Clarity, and it focuses on two great Maori leaders, um, wonderful no. men. Yeah. Um, tell us. So, that, I mean, 
I, I wanted to show that um, that this understanding of the treaty was pretty consistent from the time it was signed through the northern wars, through the land wars. And, and, and the whole thing about the land wars in the book is, is I'm, I'm looking at in terms of what were chiefs saying during that time. Were they saying that we're, we're fighting these battles because we haven't been um, – we haven't been offered the dual sovereignty partnership that we were promised in the treaty. And, you know, they weren't saying that. They were saying the, la- the Crown's done the dirty on us, we're out of here. That's what they were saying in the land wars. Um, and then we, then we get to, okay, what about after that? And so I looked at perhaps the two key Māori leaders in the early um, 1900s, one of which was Apirana Nata and the other which was Ratana, uh, two very different uh, leaders. Uh, Nata was uh, a lawyer who became uh, a very long-serving member of parliament. Uh, Ratana uh, was uh, a spiritual leader and became the head of, the, obviously set up the Ratana Church. And I, I just looked at how did they see the treaty? What were they saying about the treaty in their time? And, you know, it, it, both of them, in particular Nata, very clear. You know, I mean, in 1940, and you can hear this. It's actually on Radio New Zealand. You can hear Nata say this. He he went to uh, Waitangi, the centennial celebrations of the treaty in 1940. Uh, he was a prime mover in organising those celebrations. He made a speech. He talked about many of the problems that Māori had faced um, due to Crown not honouring the treaty in many areas. But he also said uh, that in the treaty, the mana and the sovereignty of New Zealand was given to Queen Victoria and her descendants forever. I mean, he's quite clear about that, you know, and um, he was very clear that the, the treaty established the sovereignty of the Crown in New Zealand. His, his big thing was actually Article 3 of the treaty in terms of that gave Māori rights under British as, as British citizens, which they should pursue. And he used that article on many occasions uh, in pursuing treaty settlements in Parliament, but he was always very clear um, that the treaty established Crown sovereignty in New Zealand. And he was also, um, people sort of try and make out sometimes he was a bit of an apologist for Pākehā culture because he was a member of the Liberal Party and he was a lawyer, and, but he was a very big mover in the bicultural space. He, he said, um, we are equal citizens, but we are not identical citizens. So he mm. wasn't arguing that we should all be the same. And, and mm. I'd hate people to think that I'm arguing that either. I don't, I don't think we should all be the same. That would be awful. Um, you know, there are many, uh, we, we, we are different, uh, but we are equal. Mm. Uh, and we have got a lot to learn from each other. Um, but Nata, he was very much in the bicultural space and he promoted um, Māori carving again and te reo and, uh, and the restoration of marae and uh, wāta. So he was, and he's given a lot of credit among Māori nowadays for that, but when it comes to his views on sovereignty, apparently he was just a man of his times. Well, he was a man of his times, and those times were a lot closer to the actual treaty signing than we are now. Um, Isn't Isn't it terrible that here we have a man of enormous stature? Yeah. Um, a more enormous intellectual force. Um, he could walk into a meeting and change it. You know, he was oh, Richie yeah. McCaw hitting the ruck, you know, it would shift. 
<laughs> and right. um, he was responsible for raising the Mary Battalion. Yes. Yeah. And he understood very clearly and articulated it at every opportunity. And as you say, not only can we read what he had to say, we can hear what he had to say. Absolutely. And you and I recognize ourselves as pygmies compared to this giant. Absolutely. And we have these fellow pygmies who scribble away, who don't lead anyone, who don't articulate this great vision, who don't put everything on the line over and over and over again, literally be smirching him and belittling him. Not even in a way that says, oh, like all men, he had his faults, but in a way that they take his words and say he wasn't telling the truth, or yeah. he was he was he was playing a game, or he was actually like an Uncle Tom. Exactly. This is, yeah. this is disgusting. This yeah. is truly disgusting. Yeah. And right. and in doing that, undermining our spirit, our pride, our abilities. Our heritage. Our heritage, destroying mm. our role models. These this is truly, truly terrible. And this is a keen. I gotta tell you, listeners, you've got to get this book. It's called One Sun in the Sky. You can find it on Ewan's webpage, ww uh, com. Get the book because it just it is truly uplifting. At the same time, you get a bit angry at the modern interpretation and treatment of, of people. We have these, we have our founding fathers and our leaders through history. We uh, do, absolutely. And, and they're quite inspiring people. Yeah. And we have our battles on our yes. land that yes. are amazing in of themselves. Um, so that treatment of Sir Aparananata is so gobsmackingly terrible that you could do that to a man like that. Um, and I honestly, we'll possibly get onto this, but I don't understand the motivation. And we also had, you're on uh, Reality Check Radio. Please text us, 2057, or email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. We're with Ewan McQueen, the author of this wonderful book. We also have someone I know nothing about other than I read in your book, Ewan, Ratana, tell us about Ratana. Yeah, Ratana. He he was uh, uh, the leader of the Ratana Church. Ratana, um, sorry. Yeah, and um, of course uh, he 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 was very much. He was actually quite a, a miraculous. He had a miraculous ministry in healing people, and uh, he he engaged. If you go to Ratana, you can find I think. There's a whole building full of um, crutches and wheelchairs and, and various other things which people left behind um, because he, they were healed by, by Ratana uh, and um, were healed by God using the ministry of, of Ratana. So that's how he started off his ministry, but he also became very concerned about um, matters political in terms of honouring the treaty. And uh he, he saw that as his, his work. There was a spiritual work and there was a work to do with the land. 
And uh, so he he very much took up the cudgels for uh, trying to achieve um, settlements for for land lost and all these sorts of things. Uh, but in doing so, and he said he was concerned about mana motuhaki, uh, Maori self determination. But he never saw that as something in competition with crown sovereignty. He he saw it as 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 the treaty saw it as something within the context of the overarching sovereignty of the crown. And in fact, one of the things um, he used to do when he travelled around the country, he had a car. I think there's a photo in the book of him. Yes, there is a beautiful photo. Yeah, a car, and he's got a flag. And on the flag, he's got the Union Jack in, in, in the corner, you know, so um, because he recognised the importance of what he called um, uh, human law in the country, and he recognised the Crown as holding sovereignty in New Zealand. Of course, he wanted self-determination, but that's a different thing from a separate and equal sovereignty. And when was he touring around the country? I think it was like the 1920s. Uh, 1920s, uh, 1930s, he had, he met with, I think, with the first Labour um, Prime Minister, uh, Mickey Savage, and, um, you know, this relationship formed between Rata and, and the Labour Party. And they ended up with, with MPs in Parliament. I think Eruera Turakatni was one of the first uh, Ratana MPs. And you can read some of the things he said in Parliament, which are uh, quite clear in terms of... Um, Concern about land loss, but also recognition of crown sovereignty. And no partnership. No, well, nobody really. The word partnership hasn't really appeared on the scene until the last 30 or 40 years. And no um, co-governance. <laughs> no, no, co-governance is um, another more modern term. Interesting. And, uh, it's, sorry? It's interesting. Uh, co-governance really didn't come to the fore until about uh, – two or three years ago, immediately after I published this book. So when you read this book, I think the term co-governance only appears very rarely, um, mm. but the book speaks into the very nub of the issue because people say we need, co- we need co-governance, they say, because the treaty, um, it's because of the treaty, and they say in the treaty the chiefs did not give up sovereignty, and so we had this dual partnership, and so that's why we need co-governance. So that's why we need to go and examine that and say there's a lot of noise in the political branches of this treaty, but we need to go back to the roots and say, well, what did the treaty say? What is the evidence for how it was understood? And that's what this book attempts to do. And Ratana set up a ministry which is still extant. You you mean the um, which one are you talking about there? The Ratana Church is still. Oh, the Ratana Church. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And that's, he started it. He's the founder of that church. Yeah. Still, still a lot of members, I guess. Still strong. Yeah, it's still a, still a strong church. Of course, that's where all the political leaders turn up Why every day as well. I, I think it's an historical thing because uh, when Rathana got involved in politics, uh, there was this relationship formed with with the political realm as well. So. Primarily the, the the Labour Party. I'm not quite sure why all the other parties turn up now. Um, perhaps the right on the church are just trying to be uh, a more objective and more a border church. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe. Well, yeah. I was an MP for a while, and I never went. I no one could explain to me that all take this pilgrimage up there, and I thought I don't understand why. And I'd say to people, why? What? What's the logic of this? Right. And. Um, 
I would have thought Rodney is an MP. You'd love to go and talk to people, whoever they were. <laughs> yeah, well, I figured they weren't going to vote Act. Um, just the inkling I had. Right. Um, and I suppose if you're the National Party, you got to put it. Put it. You may not win votes, but you'd lose votes if you didn't go. Um, so these two great leaders of the 20th century had total. They had a traditional view of the yes. treaty. Now, and I are going to finish with your book now, Ewan, because that's where we've got to, and we're going to take a little bit of the ending of the book, but I'm going to ask you to write a second book because it's what's happened now, right? Because it's right. such a remarkable, and you cover it, but I think it might be a book because it's so shocking and I don't understand it because just for listeners that are tuning in, it's Reality Check Radio. You're with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm speaking with the wonderful Ewan McQueen, who's written this wonderful book, One Sun in the Sky, which is a beautiful, wonderful read. It'll enrich your life to read this book. It'll make you proud to be a New Zealander which we all need to have because we've got so much to be proud about. Yeah, absolutely. And and it brings us together, this book. This makes you angry over those who seem to want to divide us. Um, So you can get this book, www.onesunandthesky.com. All one word. All one word. And you can text me at 2057 or email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Ewan, something's happened. I mean, when we say something's happened, boy, has it happened right across the spectrum. Education, science, history, culture, values. Everything seems to have been all of a sudden upended. But you realize Mm. it's been a slow cooking a frog in a pot Mm. but something happened with this hundred years of our understanding of the treaty so it became something else tell us about that yeah well for about 150 years the treaty was understood in a traditional sense in the sense that established the sovereignty of the crown over all new zealanders and yes all New Zealanders' rights would be protected under the treaty, and yes, chieftainship would be honoured as well. And yes, in many cases, it wasn't. Um, but that's the way it was understood. In the in the 80s, 70s and 80s, things began to change. And in fact, in 1987, there was a very key court decision, uh, the Court of Appeal, in the case uh, brought by the Māori Council, because the government at the time was vesting a large amount of lands in newly created state-owned enterprises. And the Māori Council uh, was concerned that the treaty settlements process was just really starting out then. And, of course, they were concerned that this land would, would disappear into these enterprises and that they may not be able to have access to it in terms of um, treaty settlements. And I think this concern was very fair. Uh, and very reasonable. I mean, land lost was was the start of the process, and so land returned would probably be the best way of of, of dealing with it now. Um, and so they took the government to court uh, and to try and stop 
uh, you know, the land being lost into these state-owned enterprises, the government uh, had said that it needed to act in accordance with the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi uh, in the Act, and the court decided that one of the principles was that the Crown and, and Māori were partners. And so that's where this partnership idea came from. And it was a court decision uh, which essentially, essentially established a precedent in terms of the Crown and Iwi were now partners. Now, prior to that, there hadn't been a whole lot of talk about partnership. Um, but after that, it just became more and more prevalent. Um, you also had at the time a couple of very influential books, of course, Claudia Orange's book, um, The Treaty of Waiting, it also published 1987. And that started as a very good book, um, but it just raised questions about did Māori really give up sovereignty um, in, in the treaty? And uh, it never provided any evidence, uh, but it raised questions. Uh, and then Ranganui Walker published a book, Struggle Without End, in 1990, which became another key book, uh, in which he said, no, the chiefs didn't give up sovereignty. They simply agreed to uh, the governor being over Pākehā and the chiefs would maintain sovereignty over, over Māori. And, you know, when I read that book and I saw that statement, I thought, OK, this is interesting. So, so what's, what's Walker going to provide as evidence for this? And I read on. And he just changed the topic, went on to talk about something else. And I uh, thought, well, hang on, that's a very strong assertion to make. Uh, where's the evidence? But he didn't provide any evidence. But anyway, all I'm trying to say is that th there was a very uh, influential period from 87 through to 90 where the whole concept of partnership started developing. And, of course, you know, where it's gone since then. You know, we, we don't hear anything but partnership now. And, and I would say, I don't have any issue with the term partnership in a relational sense. I think New Zealanders are, are pragmatic people. We like to get on with each other. And uh, that's why uh, so many New Zealanders are bought into the, the partnership concept because we, we're, we're good people. We want to get on with each other. We don't want bad race relations. and um, But they don't understand that the partnership being referred to is not a relational partnership. It's a constitutional partnership. Yeah. And that is quite a different thing. It is not a it is not a partnership between Maori and Pakiha. It is a partnership between Maori and the Crown, the institution of the Crown, and it is a constitutional concept. And it deals with how we will. Um, it, it relates to how we will deal with authority and power in New Zealand. So that's quite a different thing. And and it's and it, then it goes back and says, well, this we can justify this because of the treaty. And as I say, my book. In my book, you know, the evidence is that you can't justify that because of the treaty. Um, when when you look at that 87 uh, court decision where the word partnership was introduced as one of the principles of the treaty, from the text, is it suggesting a constitutional partnership or was it on the nature of need to talk? Oh, I think when a court makes a decision like that, it becomes a constitutional precedent. Okay. Um, so, uh, but the, the interesting thing is that the court also noted in the same decision uh, that Māori have a duty of loyalty uh, to the government uh, and, and the Crown. Um, but you don't hear much about that side of the decision. You, what you hear yeah. about always is the fact that 
uh, there is this partnership that the Crown needs to recognise. And to be fair, uh, the, law, the, the the judges probably had in their mind as, as legal beagles that, you know, a partnership in a legal sense doesn't have to be equal. You know, you can have a junior yeah. partner and a, and a senior partner. And so they weren't necessarily saying that there needed to be an equal partnership between Crown and Māori. But for, for Joe Bloggs on the street, you say partnership, what does he think? He thinks, well, partnership's equal. I mean, and in politics, you know, leaving aside the legal nuances, when it comes to politics, if you say partnership, what that means to people is, oh, well, we, we have an equal role to play here. And, I'll, and let me be clear, we are equal. We are all equal as citizens. We are all of equal worth. But the partnership being promoted uh, since this court decision has been a constitutional partnership between Māori and the Crown, not between Māori and Pākehā. You'd have to explain that to me better. Well, I, I, I think... I'm, I'm probably thicker than most of our listeners well, I think, I think uh, because I'm struggling failure. with that nuance that you're trying to establish for me. Yeah, maybe I'm not explaining it very well. Um, if you think of the... Uh, I don't know if you know the um, the crown. Uh, what do you call it? The 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 emblem, you know, you, of New Zealand. The, oh yes, the, the you would have yeah. seen this as an MP many times. You know, yeah. the, the, oh, the, the Maori and the the Pakia, yeah. And, and and what is above both of them? The crown. Yes. So that that explains, I think very well what the treaty really is, which is Māori and Pākehā in partnership under the Crown. Yeah. What's been promoted since 1987 is, okay, take take the Māori side of that uh, emblem out, put it up alongside the Crown. Got it. Now I'm with you. So you you're, you're saying it's not a constitutional partnership. No, the, the treaty. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I misunderstood you, you and I was, that's why I struggled because I thought you were saying it's not a partnership between two peoples. It's a partnership uh, with the Maori and the Crown. And no, what? No, yeah, no, sorry. that's that's what they're saying. And what you're yeah. saying is that's wrong. There's exactly. a partnership between two peoples coming together under yes. the Crown. Yes. Got yes. it. So, and, so and, and, when, and when and when that. When that court case was written, what you're suggesting is because it was a court case, because it involved the Crown, the clear implication was the partnership had changed between two peoples coming together and radically different peoples at that time uh, because of a different history, that that court case changed it as a partnership where, if you like, the poor Europeans on the bottom are all alone and the Maori <laughs> and the Crown are above them together. Yeah, yeah, well, in a simple way, yes, and that and that is and that's to be that's, honest, that's how I feel. <laughs> well, I think, and, and I think that's how a lot of New Zealanders feel. And and I don't and, I, and not just Pākehā either. I think we need to realise this is not a Maori Pākehā issue. This is a, a, an issue of traditionalists versus modernists. Um, and there are Maori who are, have a traditional view of the treaty and Pākehā, who have a traditional view of the treaty. And there are others, both Pākehā and Māori, who have a modernist view. And um, and, I, and another way of putting that is not necessarily traditionalist versus modernist, it's perhaps evidence-based versus assertion-based, mm. uh, because that's really what it is. Uh, the modern so, view is not based in evidence, it's based in assertion. So you, 
finished your book, you cross the last T and dot the last I. I suppose you do that on a word processor now, so it's not quite the same. You have it proofread. Then what happened? Did you get a publisher easily? I, I looked at getting publishers, but um, to be honest, when you've never published a book before, uh, publishers look at you pretty dimly. And uh, I also had the problem that COVID had just struck and there was an awful lot of uncertainty uh, about what was happening in the economy and, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, in the end, I self-published. Uh, I, I printed, I had the book printed, put together myself and printed, and I, which meant it's actually better that way because I controlled completely the book, what went into it, how it goes forward. That's I have the rights. Yeah, I have the rights to it. Um, no, nobody can just say, oh, we're not going to print anymore. If I want to print some more, I'll do that. And I actually already have, you know. The book mm -hmm. has proven so popular that I actually had, did another print run a few months back. Um, and I hope to do that again as, as it continues to go out. Um, as I say, nearly 2,000 already um, sold. And Did uh, you send the book out for review? I didn't send it for a review, but, uh, well, no. Put it this way, I sent it to uh, some individuals who, who I thought would be interested, and then they did give me some pretty good feedback. I mean, oh, it, no, that's before you published it, is it? No, I no, mean, no, after, okay, after, after, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are people like Professor Elizabeth Rata, uh, I think yes. you may know of her, she's yes. a professor in the School of Critical Studies at Auckland University Education Faculty. She, she loved it, and she gave me some very positive feedback, and you'll see that on the website. Mm -hmm. Um, Professor Paul Moon. Yes. Also, he he was pretty positive about it, said it was a valuable contribution, um, very nuanced, and you'll find that feedback on the website as well. There's a number of just short reviews on the website that people can read about the book if they want to. But nothing like in the New Zealand Herald? No, no. I did I did try and get into Radio New Zealand, but, I mean, that was a bit of a lost cause, to be honest. Um, Have you tried to write an op-ed and get it published? I used to get op-eds published, Rodney. Um, I used to, over the years, uh, because you know my previous my previous life a little bit, I I, um, I did get stuff published in newspapers across New Zealand. But in recent years, it has become very difficult to get anything published that is not uh, according to the the established narrative. Yes, no. Well, I have I did the same, and I have slowly been. Um de-platform from everything, getting into yeah. a smaller and smaller circle. And it's so wonderful to have reality check radio. Um, yeah, well, there's a, there's a growth of, of sort of things like reality check radio. You know, yeah. You've got Sean Plunkett, you've got the yeah. Groundswell people. Yeah. And there, there are a whole new growth of, of media platforms for people who, frankly, have been, as you say, de-platformed. De um, and, I mean, it's not like... Well, the way things are going, Ewan, um, this could be hate speech, right? Or disinformation. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed that. Um, but when you see, say, the likes of a Don Brash being denied entry when he was invited to speak at Massey University, I mean, Don Brash isn't Joe Blow white supremacist. Um, he's the no. former Reserve Bank Governor and Leader of the National Party and a Vice-Chancellor of a public institution 
took it upon herself to ban him. Oh, and by the way, he was invited to talk about his time as leader of the National Party. Right. It was a political speech. It wasn't like a speech about even the treaty. So these, you don't know, like your book is straight down the middle of what Sir Aparananata believed his entire life. Yep. Um, no question. And yet now that is, you know, you couldn't, I know that you both, you and I know that we couldn't write a review of this book and have it published anywhere in New Zealand. No, I, I, I think that's a, that's a true statement. But I, I am heartened by the fact that there are other platforms arising yes. Yes. And I'm heartened by the fact that when I see that libraries all across New Zealand have that actually is, that is taken, amazing taken copies. Um, are they pushed? Are they pushed between the gay sex sort of books for kids in the <laughs> library or something? Um, I, I don't know. Um, my my but, little my little ten year old went to the library, and she came home with two bookmarks. From right. the library, which were all the latest readings on bisexual sex oh, and dear. all the rest of it, uh, promoting that. And you're thinking, um, oh my goodness. And and you also wonder, and of course, this is the beautiful thing about the truth and the beautiful thing about free speech. You can't actually stop what we think, you actually can't stop us talking. Uh we can still get on the internet and talk about these things. Yes. And the truth is a very, very powerful thing. And people thirst for it in a funny way. Absolutely. We, as, as someone once said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yes. Where does that come from? Do you know? Gospel of John in the Bible, Rodney. <laughs> I was thinking it was a biblical quote. Yeah. That's wonderful. And and so there's a search, there, there is a thing, and we know this because you and I are not wanting to shut anyone down. No, not at all. And I, I'm, I'm quite happy to debate these yeah. matters with people. And but to be what, wrong. What I, yeah, absolutely. If people want to prove me wrong, go for it. But to be honest, um, no one wants to talk about it. If people do engage, they simply shout and, and you know, without capital letters across their, their social media posts that you're you're hateful and you're wrong in this. But no one actually engages with the evidence. No. I mean, I'm very happy. If people want to say, look, you're wrong because of this, this, and this, fine, I might have to change my views. Um, but I've yet to come across anyone who has pointed out anything substantially wrong with what I said. In fact, no one has really pointed out anything. Um no, and if there was a if there was a glaring omission or a terrible mistake in your book, oh boy, you would have heard about it. Oh, I, absolutely, I'm sure. I think probably the strongest argument that people can make uh, against this book, and I don't think it's a very strong argument, but I, I recognise there might be something to it, and that is that I'm not Maori. Um, I'm this I'm this this white guy, as you said, you know. And so, how would yeah. I know? Uh, and um, and I've therefore I've got a particular worldview, and I don't understand 
tell Māori uh, their way of viewing the world, and therefore I have misinterpreted what they have said. And yeah, you, you could argue that there might be some truth to that. No. But when when you <laughs> read... No, no, you, 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 you. Carry on. That's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, well, carry on. Uh, let, 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 let's just say, let, you know, let's say maybe that there could be some truth to that. But w- the problem with it is that when you read what they actually said, which I've pretty much quoted straight over and over again throughout this book, is that a lot of what they said, well, it's all very straightforward. It's no, There's nothing complicated mm. about it. It's very hard to see how you could have misinterpreted every single one of that overwhelming corpus of evidence. Mm. And so if people want to make that argument, I say, okay, you, you might have, well, show me how I've misinterpreted this, this. Show me how mm. I've misinterpreted that. Show me what mm. I don't understand that I've misinterpreted what Tamari Wakanene said or what Renata Kawaipo said or what Tamihana Wurimu uh, Tamihana said or Tamihana Teiropraha. You know, show me what I've got wrong about this very straightforward statement. Um, but no one does. No. And the reason that you shouldn't accept that, um, if I may take a moment, is what you're arguing against is something I've resisted for over 30 years because people have always been at me to read up on, it's got a number of names, wokeism, cultural Marxism, postmodernism, all all these things. And whenever I've attempted it, it's just struck me as babble. You know, I never liked sociology because it seemed to be to be nonsense and just sort of reapplied Marxism. I, you know, you and I are economists. We don't think in terms of groups. We think no, of individuals. No. And we understand culture and we understand value systems, but we know that there's a thinking person and they make decisions and they may be in a group and, and the rest of it, but the fundamental decision maker is the individual. But of course, this movement that is now dominant is a rejection of facts and factual history. And it's all about lived experience and standpoint and diversity. And therefore, um, and uh, power between groups. And there you are, white, Christian, male, heterosexual. So in this view of the world, you're a, you're the oppressor. You're the powerful group. You're a member of the powerful group. Everything that you see, everything that you say, everything that you write is to reinforce the power that you have over everyone as your group. And then everyone else is oppressed, and they're oppressed in a, in a hierarchical fashion. That's right. <laughs> and so it's... I've often thought, Rodney, you know, because I know exactly the point you're making, and I've sat there as, as I've been writing this book thinking, you know what, I have to give up my job because I actually resigned from my job four years ago if I could finish this. Um, I had to give up my job. I had to self-publish it, put my own money into it, and, um, and you know, I, I, my power is increasingly reduced because no one, you know, yes. no one publishes what I want to write anymore. Um, and yet, and then I think of people sitting in universities who are publicly funded, who have all access to the mainstream media um, and who are promoting a, a, a very different narrative. 
And I think, well, who are the powerful people now? Yes. And, of course, if you happen to be a Maori lesbian in a, in a wheelchair, right, and you wrote this book, you would be destroyed more than ever, wouldn't you? They, would, they be... would absolutely destroy you. They wouldn't oh. say, they wouldn't say, oh, there must be some value in this book because, you know, that person's writing from their lived experience and their standpoint and, you know, they're a Maori lesbian. That's not how it works. You cannot step out of the narrative. You cannot step out of the ideology. The only thing, and and you're like Aparananata, you know, you're an Uncle Tom or something if you did that, wouldn't you think? Yeah, there are a lot of contradictions, Rodney, these days. There are, there are just... So and many comments. It makes um, your head hurt. And I think yeah. it's designed that way to win a political point. So you don't argue history, you don't argue facts, you don't argue what works. You actually, the ideology comes first, and everything has to be subservient to that. And it's, I, when I read this book, Ewan, it's like, there's been a deliberate attempt. I'm not saying a conspiracy, but I think it's the philosophy of postmodernism, a deliberate attempt to obfuscate, to confuse, to um, disorientate people from the truth. I I think over the years it is true that... um, you know, people have simply repeated an assertion so often yeah. that people have come to believe it. People have repeated the assertion so often that, um, you know, there are differences between the texts. And, well, and that, I'd fallen completely problem. for that one. I believe you that. Know, yeah, I believe that. Exactly. And most people don't know that actually when you go back and look at the text, well, actually, it's not that different. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and, I mean, but, I never bothered with history because I thought, oh, well, it's all confusing um, he says, she said, they say, he says, so I'm not going to put my mind to it. Um, I put my mind to it a bit more than Jacinda Ardern because I didn't know what article one was. <laughs> but that's part of the deliberate ploy, right? So Claudia yeah. Orange and Vincent O'Malley and other so-called experts, of course, Claudia Orange, I think, must be in trouble because I don't think she's Maori, right? So her history can be discounted. But I noticed when they do a news story now, there was a recent case of my local MP. Is it Joseph Mooney? Is that his name? Yeah, I think it is Joseph, yeah. He came out and apparently he had interpreted Article 2 wrongly in a tweet. Hmm. Now, I don't even quite know the point he was making or where he'd got it wrong, but he was fallen upon in this news story by a bunch of academics of the proper tribal affiliations, because that was always recorded. And Mr. Luxon had to come out and say, well, he shouldn't be engaging in these constitutional arguments on Twitter. And he was just shot to pieces, right? I suspect he was probably right. But that's what uh, happened. I, 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 I would have to disagree on that. Okay. I, mean, I, I saw Joseph's tweet, and um, I, I do think he'd taken... Uh, article two of the treaty out of context 
And because context is so important when it comes to interpreting. Because I thought he was making an Article 3 point. No, I think he was making an Article 2 point about all the, all the people, as, as, as I recall. But, okay. Um, but yeah, put that aside, I, I think there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of contradictions. Um, but history is important. And we must not walk away from it because of that. And that's partly why I wrote the book, because I could see that, you know, this is important because this has real-world implications for how we go forward as a nation. Absolutely. People are now suggesting, you know, with the co-governance stuff, that uh, we should have 50-50 power sharing across all sort of governance spaces in New Zealand. I mean, that's where that's headed. Um, And that's because of a particular view of history that has been promoted for the last 30 years, which is frankly not, not correct. You know, um, So we do need to know our history and we do need to have debate about it and um, rather than just assume a particular narrative is true. Well, that's why everyone should read this book because over the next foreseeable few years, this ain't going away. It's got no, a head. No, it's, not. it's got because a becoming a major issue. Yeah, yeah, and it's begun to come more so because of the kids going through school and university, because of the media, and then there's this one book <laughs> standing there, and it's like as you say, it's not your lived experience, it's not your standpoint, it's simply recording history by the people that were there doing it. Exactly. What did they say? What did they think? You're not yeah. surmising what um, the Maori chief said at Waitangi or thought. No. They told us. You're not. Exactly. It, it, it is astonishing. Well, I have to say, Ewan, and I got it wrong about Joseph Mooney, and that's me. I apologise. I was trying to make a point about how if you step outside the narrative, you get come down on a ton of bricks. But oh, deserved, that, that's true. That's true. He, just that he, I, no, I, I just picked yeah. a bad example. He deserved yeah. everything that he got, so go for it. Um, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm I don't not, know about that. No, <laughs> I'm not bothered about him. He's my local MP. Destroy him. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That it's very hard, and that's why – this book circulating is going to make a difference. You can get the book by going onto Ewan's uh, webpage. Uh, it's www.onesuninthesky.com. Please do. Go to your library, and the book's hot, so you'll probably have to put your name down and wait for it to come. Um, I think when you read it, you'll say, boy, I'd like my own copy. Um and you'd probably, it's a great gift, and it'll be a great topic of conversation um, at your next dinner party. Just be careful who's there, because you might get a bit heated if it's some sort of um, school teacher or something, if you know what I mean, young school teacher. Ewan, thank you for your time. Thank you for your book. Um, I hope I gave it, gave you justice. Um, oh, look, I, I'm very happy to have been on, Rodney. It's, it's been a great chat. Perhaps we've been a bit right. rambling in some places, but no, I no. appreciate it very much. And, um, yeah, if people want the book, it's $39.50. Um, if, you're, if you're in rural postage, then it's a little bit more. But, um, yeah, onesuninthesky.com, go and you, yeah. can, you can get a pick copy on online. The, pick on the farmers. Um, <laughs> you with 
you with Play New Zealand Post. <laughs> you with Reality Check Radio. It's been real talk with Rodney Hyde. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful, wonderful guest uh, that was with you and McQueen. Um, wonderful author, wonderful book, wonderful read. The 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 words are like a story. You could read you some bits you want to you slow down your reading because it's so well written. And then as Ewan explained, it's stories, stories about people that really lived and stories about people that did things that you can't believe and stories about a history that you only have sort of vaguely aware of, like some dream that you had once but have forgotten. And this book just brings it alive. And what I just so loved about it was it made me proud to be a Kiwi, proud to be the inheritor of tradition that came with the best spirit and the best will on both sides, two people actually coming together. And despite all the problems, despite all the violence, and despite all the difficulties, there were leaders who put themselves above the fray and looked to the future for what was best for the people. And these weren't anyone. These were warriors on both sides, men who had fought wars and knew what it was to see death and destruction. And they built a marvellous, wonderful country. And if we don't learn from them, and if we don't study our history, we'll lose this country, I fear. And that's why this book, One Sun in the Sky, by Ewan McQueen, is so important, because it's actually about saving our country and saving ourselves. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, You're with Reality Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.